Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Open up with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 1. Last week, as you're turning there, we began by doing a, a quick overview of the first half of Exodus, looking at the story that is told, the, the plan that is laid out. And I, I think that is important. We're going we're gonna to do that a little bit this morning, only we're going we're gonna to look backwards a little bit as we look at these first seven verses, which I, I think is actually what these first seven verses do. They point us backwards. It's important to do that, though, because too often our lives are so caught up in the moment, just caught up, surrounded in what we see going on around us that we miss. At least we miss it now. We, we generally don't see it until later, the bigger plan, the bigger picture of what God is doing. In fact, our temptation in the moment is to think that God is either not there or that he just doesn't care. That, you know what? There must not be a God if this can happen to me. If this can happen to my family, if this can happen to good people or to this world, there must not be a God or if there is, I think he's mean. I, I think he just doesn't care about us. This is not a new idea. It's not a new problem. Back in 1918, Arthur W. Pink wrote his classic book, The Sovereignty of God, and he wrote it in response to what most of the churches in his day were saying about World War I. World War I, this great war, the war they thought to end all wars. It was so terrible. It was so long. It was so universal. This must be the end of all war as we know it in this world. And the churches were sadly declaring from the pulpits the reason this is going on so long. The reason the cost is this high is because this is the evil of man and God has no power to overrule and override the evil of man, and therefore God is impotent. He is powerless to bring an end to this war. This war is outside of our God's control. Effectively, what they were claiming was a version of Christian deism. Now, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that, that term deism. It, it's a theological worldview that basically is, is most of the time expressed like this. God is a cosmic watchmaker, that he has made the world and the universe and all things that exist, and he wound it up, and then he let it go, and he stepped back. And since that time, he is powerless. He is impotent over anything that happens in the world. In fact, now it is the, the total choice, the, the power of good or evil in humanity that determines the outcome of where things are going. Christian deism is basically saying, I believe in the God of the Bible, but I believe that that God created all things, but has no determinative factor now. Man does. It, this, is, this is really important because this idea has crept so subtly into the church that many, many denominations would actually espouse some form of Christian deism and don't even realize that that's what they're doing. They've taken sovereignty away from God and given it to man. 
The problem with Christian deism is it's actually a step worse than the watchmaker, uh, just sort of theistic deism. The, the watchmaker who makes the world and winds it up. Christian deism says this. God is a watchmaker, and then we rebelled. Satan rebelled. Together, us and Satan, we beat up Jesus, we stole the watch, and now God is just a sad old man like Geppetto, helplessly waiting for his son to come home. That's the hope of salvation. Jesus has, has sort of accomplished it, but God is, is sort of relegated to the sidelines where he sits as a sad, disappointed old man that just is hoping, maybe, maybe you'll come back. That maybe some will choose to turn to him. And I, I would say, let us, let us be theologically honest and place that squarely in the camp of deism, not Christian theism. Pink writes this in his book. Who is regulating the affairs of earth today? God or the devil? What says the scriptures? If we believe their plain and positive declarations, no room is left for uncertainty. They affirm again and again that God is on the throne of the universe, that the scepter is in his hand, that he is directing all things, this is a scripture quote, after the counsel of his own will. They affirm not only that God created all things, but also that God is ruling and reigning over all things, all the works of his hands. They affirm that God is almighty, that his will is irreversible, he is absolutely sovereign in every realm of his vast dominion, and surely it must be so. Only two alternatives are possible. God must either rule or be ruled. He must either sway or be swayed, accomplish his will, or be thwarted by his One of those is Christian theism as we find it in the Bible, that God is the sovereign ruler on the throne, ruling all things in heaven and earth and under the earth, and the other is deism. Let us not miss that point. Now, why are we talking about theism and deism as we're beginning Exodus? Because that is exactly the story that this book is telling. This book is not the story of a God who calls a people back in Genesis, calls the family of Abraham to himself, and then somehow, as the watchmaker, things got out of his control. Somehow they ended up in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. Somehow God is just hoping that the right circumstances will come along that he might deliver them. That is not the story of Exodus. This is the story. In fact, it's called Exodus, how I took them out of Egypt. Christian, this is your story. This is why this is vitally important to you because you will walk through dark days. Some of you are walking through them right now. Some of you came into this room almost hopeless in despair. The thing you need to hear this morning is not, listen, if you just try hard enough, it, you can turn things around in your life. You know why? Because you've been trying for a while. Here's the good news that Exodus begins with in these first seven verses. God has a plan for you and your family, and his plan is above every other plan. It's above yours. It's above evil that was intended against you. It's above evil because we live in a fallen world. Our God is sovereign and superintends over all those things. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He did not ask you what your plan was for your life. Did you notice that? He didn't ask you what your plan, what your thought for your family was. He is working today according to the counsel of his will. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. 
Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Those are the words of worship. When we recognize our place in the universe as made in the image of God, as loved by God, as ransomed by God through the blood of Christ, suddenly our dark moments become filled with hope and light because our God has not forsaken us. If you don't know that God is sovereignly ruling the throne, on the throne from heaven over everything on earth, the darkest moments in your life will lead you to despair. If we forget that for even a single moment, that, that this moment you're in right now, God's sovereign plan for his glory and my good, if we forget that, we will despair. And I think at some point we have all been there. We've all been practical deists where we thought, you know what, I think there's a God, I'm convinced there's a God, but my life stinks. And then despair just kind of sets in. Oh, Christian, let us remind ourselves today of the power and greatness of our God. That's actually what he begins with when he starts with this story of slavery and redemption. Look at verse 1 in Exodus chapter 1. This is how we got here. This is the overview. This is the introduction to this chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Church, this is a bizarre way to start the story of God's redemption from Egypt. It's bizarre. You, you don't look shocked, but let, let me give you a parallel that might help you. Uh, I don't know if any of you have noticed, but uh, we're not even there yet, but uh, everywhere around you're surrounded by images and messages of the 2020 presidential election in the United States. Has anyone noticed that at all? Okay, not, not most of you, one or two, good. So um, imagine someone decided, I'm gonna write a book. I'm gonna write a book about the 2020 election of the presidency in the United States. And here is the opening line. The first thing that we read George Washington's father was Augustine Washington, and these are his sons. We would say, that is a bizarre way to talk about this election. I mean, come on, we, we no, I'm not even going to, I can't believe I just stopped myself. <laughs> I was going to bash both political parties in one sentence, but I totally stopped myself. Whew, I'm really proud right now. Uh, that, that would be a crazy way to start this, this history of the United States, this history of this moment in the United States, except Moses, the author of Exodus, knew something that where we came from tells us about where we are and where we're going. And if we forget that for even one second, then those 400 years become hopeless and there is no Exodus at the end of it. It seems strange to start with some family history lesson, some genealogy, especially when it's genealogies with just weird-sounding names. Like, seriously, uh, parents who, I, I, we have several young mothers and expectant mothers here. Like, I thank God. I praise God. We have a Dan, which made it onto the list. I, I thank God we haven't had a Naphtali here in quite a while. A, a good Zebulun every now and then. Uh, I mean, th these aren't sort of normal names that we even talk about. And the Bible is filled with these kinds of lists. Have you noticed that? 
As you're reading your, your scriptures just in personal devotion, Old and New Testament, we find these giant lists of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so. It seems so boring and most of the time just hard to pronounce. Here's what I want you to think. When you're tempted to skip over those, here's what I want you to think. Every time you meet one of those lists, think this. God is connecting the dots through people as if to say, this is my plan. It's unchanged. It's on schedule. God is connecting the dots through people, through generations, through fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, as if to say, this is my plan. It is unchanged and on schedule. Because those lists are filled with horrible nightmares. We, we don't have time this morning to go into it. But just sort of train wreck after train wreck of personalities and lives and families. And God's plan is unchanged and on schedule. Christian, when your life and your family goes through a train wreck, God's plan is unchanged and on schedule schedule. That's the message of these genealogies. That I am working through generations to accomplish my will. It is not just about the last 10 minutes. Keith Getty put it in song like this, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. This was the life song of Joseph. Joseph who's at the end of this list. This list of all who came, and it says Joseph was already in Egypt. In other words, we begin by assuming you know the story of Joseph. That's, that's where Exodus begins. In God's sovereign plan, just consider this for a second. He placed Joseph in exactly the right spot. Turn to the person next to you and say, exactly the right spot. Exactly the right spot. Hey, have you ever heard this phrase? The safest place to be is right in the middle of God's will. Anybody heard that before? Yeah. The safest place to be. Man, if I, can, if I can just know God's will, if I can then walk in God's will, stay in God's will, be in the center of God's will for my life, man, that's the safest place to be. God is surrounding me in those moments. I want to suggest there's at least two problems with that statement. Number one, it implies that it is possible to be outside of God's will. And if we're going to talk like that, we better talk really carefully. It, we're going to define some terms for you here in just a second. What does it mean to be outside of God's will? Can we then thwart God's will? If we can, we've just uh, circumvented Scripture, by the way. We, we should have a problem when we hear talk like that. Here's, here's the other thing. It, it assumes that we have any idea what safe means. So let's talk for just a second about the will of God. There, there's, there's two ways to think about the will of God. The, the desired will of God and the decreed will of God. These are the fill in the blanks for you in your bulletin. Because I want you to get this. These are actually important concepts when you're going through dark moments. The desired will of God is when God says, I desire for all men to be saved. I desire that good would triumph over evil. God's, God's moral law is an expression of this. That murder on on most places is considered at least frowned upon. Are you tracking with me? No, murder is wrong. Like There's certain things that are right and wrong. Why are they right and wrong? Because God has said, this is how I desire for my world to work and operate. This is good and this is bad, right? Are, are you tracking with me? Now, has anyone ever been murdered on this planet? Yeah. 
God, God says in his word, I desire for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the glory of God. Will all men be saved on this planet? No. Why not? Because God is, here's the argument from World War I, God is not powerful enough to affect that. God is at the mercy of humanity to affect that. Well, that, that confuses the point because uh, we forget that there's the desired will of God and then because he is king, there is the decreed will of God. The decreed will of God says this will happen. Desired says this should happen. Decreed is the king upon the throne who says this will happen. If we can keep those two things straight, we can actually go back and say the safest place to be is right in the center of God's desired will. What God wants for your life. Because when we stray from God's desired will from our life, he brings correction into our life. Amen? Right? There's some chastisement that, that gets us back onto course, but it is impossible to be outside the decreed will of God. What God has said will stand. I do all things according to the counsel of my will. Are you tracking with me? By the way, one of those exalts the sovereignty of God and the other is actually heresy. That's why we should be careful with it. Here's the second thing, the second problem we should think about is we don't have any idea what it means to be safe. Joseph, you already told your neighbor this, so be careful that you didn't lie to them, was in exactly the right spot. What spot was that? Well, he's right exactly in the decreed will of God for his life. Great. What spot was that? Well, if we listen to TV preachers, that means that he's walking in blessing. He's prospering in all that he does. Nothing is going wrong in his finances, his family. He's not, he's not having any trouble you know, with any of his health issues like that. Well, let's, let's see what the Bible actually says about Joseph. Right in the middle of God's will. He was right in the middle of God's will when his father, no fault of Joseph's, made him the favorite son and showed favor to, favoritism to him above the other brothers and made them jealous and hateful towards him. Right in the middle of God's will. Right in the middle of God's will when he gets the coat given to him that's different, makes him look different from everybody else around him. Right in the middle of God's will when the brothers are so angered, are so jealous at the dreams that he's having. That dreams that foretell of, of the family bowing down almost in worship before him, that they grab him and their plan is murder. Their plan is not slavery and selling. Their plan is murder. And they throw him in a well and their idea is let's fake his death and then we'll come back and actually kill him later when we have time. But his brother talks the rest of the brothers out of that. He's right in the middle of God's will when a caravan just happens to be coming by at the right time and they pull him up out of the well and say, how about instead of killing him, how about we make a little money off of our brother and they sell him to Egypt. He's right in the middle of God's will when he is sold again as a slave in Egypt and is now in slavery in Potiphar's house. He's in the middle of God's will. We like this one. When in Potiphar's house, he is prospering and blessing and therefore Potiphar's house is prospering and experiencing the blessing of God. He's right in the middle of God's will when Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him and he stands for righteousness and says no. And in fact, he tears himself away from her and part of his coat tears with him and is left behind in her hand. And then she says, he did the right thing. And she goes, he tried to rape me. He's right in the middle of God's will when he's left in prison to rot. Because that was all part of God's plan. 
that he might be right in the middle of God's will when he was placed as second in command in Egypt, that many people might be saved. Christian, do not miss a single step of that. Every step of the way was right in the middle of God's perfect, loving, good, sovereign plan. Oh, if we miss that for Joseph, we will miss it for us. We will think as long as we are having uh, the mountaintop experiences, I'm, that God is blessing my life. But all the other stuff, man, I, I must really be going through it. Every step. It, I, I love that we actually get Joseph thought on that exact thing. Genesis chapter 50, right at the end of the book, verse 20, he looks, those brothers who, who committed this horrible, horrible evil upon him. Now, now, before we read this, I want you to keep this in mind. Most people who argue for Christianism make this argument that God is powerless against the choice of man. That the thing that really has power is man's evil, man's choice on the earth, and therefore God's sovereignty is reduced. I honestly don't care what you believe about the phrase free will as long as you go God is sovereign. If you say God is sovereign, you can use any other terminology for man that you want. But here's what Joseph says about the sovereign free will, quote unquote, of his brothers. They thought they were ruling over all things. And he says this, you meant this for evil against me. You, you did this. You chose this. You made this happen. You betrayed me. You sold me to die. You did that. The NIV actually says it like this. You intended to harm me. He's not pulling punches and saying, look, it was all part of God's plan. It's fine. Can you hear that? You are responsible for what you have done. Don't mistake God's sovereignty for a lack of human responsibility. You're on the hook for this. Ah, but the but comes in. But God meant it. God willed it. God chose it for good in order to bring about, as it is today, to save many people alive. Exodus assumes that you know the story of Joseph. Beginning with the interaction with his brothers and then going backwards to the first name that we read here, which is Joseph's father, Jacob. Jacob, who has his name changed to Israel, it, you're familiar with him because uh, again and again we find in Scripture, in fact, it's about 15 times, some reference to God identifying himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has attached his name to this family. That Jacob, whose name means trickster, sneaky one, has this encounter with God. He wrestles with God in the night. And is changed by that encounter. In fact, God changes his name as a result of that. Changes it to Israel. But he himself as a person is changed. All of his descendants are therefore changed. The main character of this story are his descendants. And we don't call them the children of Abraham. We call them the children of Israel. They're associated not with this family that God sort of plucked out of obscurity but with the change that God identified in that family. I am doing something different in you than started in you. Jacob's grandfather, who you're familiar with, is Abraham. Now, keep in mind, this is a story about the deliverance from Egypt of all of these descendants. But he begins by just backing us up with this family history. 
pointing us back to what we should already know. Uh, by the way, this is the second time this family has ended up in hot water in Egypt. This is the second time that God has brought plagues on the Pharaoh because of this family in Egypt. Abraham has been there before. In fact, Abraham is a bizarre character. He's a bizarre character to have Christians and Muslims both attach as, oh, he is the father of our religion. He is the ancestor. He's the patriarch from which we trace all these things because this guy was weird at best. If he came to your family reunions, you would have questions. We find in Genesis chapter 12, by the way, this is immediately after hearing this promise. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I will bless you, and I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. When God promises that to Uncle Abe, he is 75 years old, and his wife Sarai is 65. She's 65 years old. This is Genesis 12. Immediately he goes, because of famine, Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 uh, tells us, now there was a famine in the land. And so Abram went to Egypt to sojourn, to stay there for a while, for the famine was severe in the land. That's the same reason that the children of Israel are going to end up in Egypt. When he was about to enter Egypt, he says to Sarai, his wife, who is 65 years old, do not forget that detail in here. I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, that's his wife? And then they will kill me. <laughs> but you will be left alive. So say that you're my sister, that it may go well with you because of me. It, it may go well with me because of you, and that my life will be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw... This is bizarre. It actually happens. The Egyptians saw a 65-year-old woman and went, Oh, man. That's a rough translation of she's very beautiful. So much so that what verse 15 says, When the princes of the Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to the Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he, dwelt, he dealt well with Abram, who he thought was the brother. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camel. He got paid to sell his wife to have sex with Pharaoh. Uncle Abe, all right. Verse 17, here's the first time this happens. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh, it was so bad that they knew we've upset a god. And it's mostly thanks to this 65-year-old woman over here. So he calls uh, Abram to himself. What is this you have done to me? Verse 18. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? He, I want you to hear the sarcasm that he is bringing. Like, what's up, dude? Why are you lying to me about this? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Go. And the Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is a tiny miniature of what's about to happen to uh, his kids. Generations later. Why did Abraham find himself in this situation? Why do we find ourselves in those situations of doubting? Here's the reason. It seems so unlikely that God would keep his promises that Abraham said, there's no way. There's no way God's going to come through for me, for my family on this. 
There's no way that God is going to protect us with my super hot 65-year-old wife. There's no way. We can't travel. Again, there's no way that God is going to provide a son with my super hot 90-year-old wife. She can't have a baby anymore. And yet we're told in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. By the way, that was God's promise to Abraham. So many descendants. It's going to be like the stars in the sky. Here's the promise that we track back to Genesis and find. In you, all the nations will be blessed. That's Genesis 22, 18. In you, not, not just in Abraham, not, not just in things going well for you or not going well for you or having sheep and camels and donkeys and all those things. No, no, no. It, it was in you, out of you will come the seed of Abraham. That is Jesus. He is the one through whom all nations are blessed because of him. In fact, you could push that all the way back to Adam at the beginning of Genesis. Adam born in perfection. Adam born without sin until Genesis 3 comes sin and the fall. And yet here's another promise coming forward. In, remember, in Christ, all the nations will be blessed. Genesis right at the beginning tells us that one of those descendants who's coming, again, this is Jesus, it's promised in Genesis 3.15, the serpent will bruise his heel, but you will crush his head. This promise, that promise of salvation, promise of sovereign redemption is the internal heartbeat throughout Genesis. It, it, it just sort of throbs in every family story that we're hearing, that we're seeing. as we're, we're tracking this family that God has called to himself. And then we get to Exodus, and this internal heartbeat becomes audible to the whole world. It's almost as like God is beating the drums of war over the most powerful nation Egypt on the earth. So at the beginning of this book, things look pretty good. In fact, it's just about as good as it can get. Saved from famine, all these descendants come in. Joseph is the number two guy in the whole country. This is God's blessing on our family, at least as we measure God's blessing. Only here's the problem. We alluded to this earlier. We're tempted to think when things are not going according to our plan, my plan, that God is not blessing us. That God's blessing is only relegated to things that I think are good and helpful for me. And yet God was blessing and multiplying the children of Israel for about 400 years that they might be this numerous. And yet most of that was lived out in slavery. Too often when things get difficult for us, we say God has left us. God has removed his blessing. He's removed his anointing from our life. Look at this beautiful story. They're in the perfect place. Everything is going great for them. Look back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. Then Joseph died. That is really bad news. Really, really, really bad news. This is your candidate being elected to the presidency who dies on inauguration day. And not only does he die, it doesn't go to uh, his vice president. They decide to give it to the opposing party who hates you and hates everything that you stand for. That's what just happened when Joseph dies. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. 
But the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. We're going to talk about this next week, verse 8. And now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, who did not know the story, who did not know this family. Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church, said it like this, God is working a good plan. It is a good plan. Make no mistakes that God's plan is a good plan. But that plan, built on his promises, rarely plays out like we think it's going to. Rarely. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that you're on your own. It means that his plan is maybe bigger than your ideas of what should happen. God starts by choosing this family placing his name upon them in Abraham, choosing forever to be identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promising again. In fact, in Genesis 15, he had promised this whole thing was going to happen. I will make you a great nation. I'm going to give you kids to a really, really old couple. Moses, uh, Moses, Abraham is, uh, Moses writes this story, but Abraham is uh, 100. His wife, who decides to get pregnant, is 90. Can you imagine a 90-year-old woman making it into our new mom's room just down the hallway here uh, with her walker, like baby and walker? Just an interesting picture. God says, this is my plan for you and your family. And Abraham replies in Genesis chapter 15, verse 3, uh, God, we can't have kids. Your plan doesn't work. You said this is a good plan for me and my family, only it doesn't work. How many times, Christian, has your life felt hopeless? How many times has your situation felt totally hopeless, where you look at God and go, God, I'm sorry, but there's no way. There's no way that you could bring anything good out of this. Some of you, that's why you came into this room discouraged today. That your life is discouraging to you because you look around you and you there's no way that God can bring his good work out of this mess in my life. And I, I want to tell you right now, I, I have some hope for you. Do you want to hear the hope? Yeah. Okay, good. If you said no, I wasn't going to tell you. <laughs> here's, here's where hope is found. Math. Math. All the teachers are like, yes, I knew this day would come. Math. God begins by calling Abraham to himself, his family to himself, and he makes a promise. I have a good plan for you, and I have a good plan for your family, and I will give you a son. One son. A son who had no chance of being born to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, and yet what was born into that family? One. By the time we reach Exodus, chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that when they go into the land of Egypt, that these, are, these are Abraham's grandchildren, right? So it begins with one son. By the time we get to the grandchildren, it says that there were 70 persons in all. In fact, literally, the Hebrew in Exodus says, thus the full offspring of the loins of Jacob was 70 in all. That's, it's kind of graphic language. He's saying, you didn't think I could accomplish one baby. Uh, look at all these babies I made. 
That's the PG version of how this could be presented. I'm not going to give you any higher version. At the beginning, when it's as good as it can get, right? This is as good as it can get. We've been saved, saved from famine. We're brought into Egypt. Uh, Joseph is the number two, as good as it can get. 70 persons at all. 70 persons who have come, as it were, from the loins of Abraham and now put 400 years of captivity and bondage upon them, right? That we, our minds say this is removed from the blessing of God. Only what happens? What happens is God's unstoppable blessing upon his people. The world and evil cannot stop God's blessing. It cannot stop God's plan for his people or your life. Every moment of this has been part of God's good and perfect plan. In fact, God had promised them that all of this was coming. He says in Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 to 14, as the sun goes down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, those are important words, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, just like you were, in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants or slaves there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on a nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. From slaves to great possessions, God promises all the way back with Abraham. That meant when a king came, a pharaoh came who did not know Joseph, it was not an accident. This was part of God's plan from the beginning for Abraham and his descendants. When hard times come to you, it is part of God's plan from the beginning that he might bring joy and redemption and freedom and glory to his name. Start with one. That's the beginning of our math. One promise kept. By the time they go into Egypt, 70 after they walk through 400 years of captivity, Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, says it like this. By the time they leave Egypt, it says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. We went from one. This is where math gets exciting. By the way, it's only exciting if I don't have to figure out the math. Right? Just tell me the answers. I'm excited to write them down. All right. It's just like high school. All right. So we start with one. By the time they go into Exodus, there's 70. After 400 years of oppression, there's over 600,000 just men. If those men were married, just married, it's 1.2 million. If they decided to have small families, which, you know, old style, traditional Jewish families, just small families. That's how we think about them, right? Kind of like the Amish, just small, you know, <laughs> tiny little families. If they had just a couple kids, most theologians and historians say it was somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5 million people who walked out of Egypt. In the middle of 400 years of burden and captivity, God birthed a nation. Is there a chance in the middle of your darkness and suffering that God is birthing something greater than you had ever imagined in your puny little math with one? Oh, God can start. God did this one thing for me. Man, God's got such a bigger plan for you. You are part of his bigger plan. That's actually why he has a bigger plan for you. In your problems, in your discouragement, the place where you feel like you've been praying and waiting, but God hasn't, quote-unquote, done anything yet. Isn't it funny how we pray and it reveals what our hearts and minds actually think? God, this situation is going on. Lord, would you please 
do something. What's the implication? Got the situations going on and you're not doing anything. Can you hear that echo in there? Oh man, God is at work in our waiting. Here's what Exodus, what this story is telling us. Here's what these first seven verses are here to remind us. Hold on. Hold on. God is working. God is working all things together, including your life's plan, including the situation that you're in right now. And how is he working them? According to the counsel of his own will. It's Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 1. Find that echoed in the Old Testament as well. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, what's it say, church? Fear no evil. Why? Why? Because you're with me. Right in the middle of this. Right in the middle of darkness and death and slavery and separation. In fact, generations where things just don't seem to get fixed. God's right in the middle of it. God has not abandoned you to your suffering. God has not abandoned you to your situation. He's working in it right now. My story, your story, my family's story, 1 Peter chapter 1 says, right now are being held and guarded in his hand for all eternity. Worship team, if you would come on up. I want to just echo maybe, maybe some of our thoughts in response to this. Especially thoughts if you've been around for a little while. So you, you respond by saying, okay, so I'm going through a really tough time. Things are difficult. And here's what you're telling me. Trust God more. Right? That's the message. Trust God, but believe that he's got a plan. God loves you and has got a plan for your life. Like, that's, that's your answer? Thank you. Thank you, preacher. That makes me feel so much better. Man. Because I felt rough coming in, but now that you, you, you said trust God more, that, oh, that clears it all right up. Thank, I'm so glad that I got up so stupid early this morning, <laughs> came tired. Most of you stayed awake during most of the sermon. It was worth it. It was worth it. Now that I know, trust God more. Thanks. Thanks a bunch. Let's just fill that out just a little bit. Number one, for the non-Christians who are here. That's exactly what we're telling you. Exactly what we're telling you is you do not have the power to control your life. You don't have the power to turn things around in your life. You need God. You need his sovereign goodness. That You don't have the power to save yourself. You need to trust in Christ. It doesn't guarantee that all of a sudden everything turns around and now uh, all the situations you were going through are perfect. It means that God has been working. God is working. He will continue to work. All of a sudden, you'll just start to see his hand. You'll start seeing that, man, this isn't all me, and I'm not just a victim of everybody else out there. God is at work. And so I would say to you, non-Christian, we're glad you're here trusting Christ. Put your hope in him. And it's just as simple as saying, God, I cannot do this without you. God will, you don't even have to ask him. He will show you all the sin, all all the places where we have let him down. All the places where we're unable to save ourselves, and then he leads us to trust in him. So if you're not saved this morning, if you're not a believer this morning, I would encourage you to do that. Trust in Christ. But if you are a Christian and that, that thought is echoing in your head, thanks a lot, but how am I supposed to trust in God? I want to give you a few really 
practical means by which we do that. Number one, immerse yourself in the truth of his word. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, although I think it might be helpful. But I want you to just think, how many of you regularly, daily, spend time reading the word of God? You have devoted, right? We call it devotions, but you have chosen to devote time in your life consistently to the scripture, to reading God's word. For those of you who do, I would say continue to pour into the scripture. To not just let it be the routine that you do. Well, I get up every morning, I make the coffee. Oh, I sort of yawn my way through it. You know, yeah, I'm just checking off the list. See it as life. See it as the word of God. And for those of you who don't invest yourself, immerse yourself in the word of God, I would say don't be surprised when you're not seeing the world around you through the lens of the word of God. No, every, everything looks like it's against you. Everything looks like you're a victim of all the circumstances around rather than seeing the sovereign hand of God. Immerse yourself in his word. Immerse yourself not only in the Bible but in good books. There's a lot of them. This is a great time to be alive for good books. Number one, we have more access today to good Christian resources than at any other time in human history of this planet ever. And if you're like me, I have even better news Audiobooks exist. Praise, praise the Lord. <laughs> right? For those of us with ADD who read a page and then we're just you know, like drifting off, uh, it, there's no excuse today for not being able to have good Christian resources at your fingertips. There's podcasts out there that preach the Word of God, help you think through the Word of God. There's Christian music out there. Uh, You've got to weed through it because not all of it is going to be super helpful, but there's a lot of resources. Here's what I'm saying. Feed your soul. Feed your soul on the Word of God. Feed your soul on good doctrine. Feed your soul on good music. Feed your soul on Christian fellowship. Here's the second one. Immerse yourself in Christian community. That's on Sunday morning. Corporate church, right? We know that. It's more than that. It's more than just gathering in this room. In fact, there's a deeper relational uh, connection that you have with brothers and sisters if you're part of a community group and you're here this morning than someone who just shows up here. In fact, there's an even deeper level if you found some place to serve within the body of Christ. That's sort of a, a second aspect to that. Get involved in corporate worship here and then in smaller groups and then find some way to be involved. See, what happens when we start immersing our lives and our thoughts and our energies in God's word and God's people, things stop becoming all about me. They start becoming part of God's plan. God's unstoppable mission for this earth. In fact, we, we give an opportunity for this every single week as we take communion together. We point you to the fact that we are drawn by the blood of Christ, but it is not drawn to ourselves. We don't mail little bread and wine to your house so that you can lock yourself in your house so you don't get the coronavirus or, God forbid, have to talk to anybody else. Right? The communion is something that we do together. We are communing together. It is, it is an action of the church. It is an action of those whom God, just like Abraham, just like Jacob, just like Joseph, just like the children of Israel, God has called to himself. God has saved by his sovereign power. And he has made us his children, who were once far off, have now been brought near.
God's plan for your life is on schedule and unchanged. Would you stand together with me and let's, let's allow the Lord to just search our hearts for a moment. Before we come to the table, before we take of the elements, God, number one, if you have called me to yourself, have I responded? There's a chance you're here this morning and you have not responded to that call. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to come to this table. This table is through the elements, through the bread and the wine, declaring it is the broken body of Jesus and is the shed blood of Jesus on my behalf by which I am saved. These elements can't save you. But if you're not a Christian, don't come declare the blood of Jesus has saved me if he hasn't. In fact, I would, I would urge you rather stay right where you are and beg that God to save you. Oh God, would you sovereignly reach down and save it's the same thing we prayed for our kids at the beginning of the service. God, call their name. If you're a Christian, we just encourage you, allow God to search your heart. Because after God calls us, after God saves us, we tend to do the same thing that we find throughout Scripture, throughout the children of Israel, and that is we drift. We become Christian deists again. We say, God, you have abandoned me. You've left me in the middle of this situation. I can't trust you. I have to trust myself. If you have found yourself thinking and acting and reacting like that, this morning is a good time to say, oh, God, forgive me. Forgive me for not believing that you are sovereign even over my life and my family. Forgive me for hopelessness. Forgive me for bitterness. Forgive me for anger that things did not go my way or the way I still think they should. Oh God, help me to trust that you, the sovereign Lord, have not only the power to save me, but to redeem my whole family. That's the story we're going to find in Exodus. Would you just have that conversation with the Lord right now?